Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. We hope that this message will challenge you and encourage you on your journey of faith. If you would like to learn more about Journey Church, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at thejourneychurch.cc. Now enjoy the message. All right. I want to talk this morning with you a little bit about competition. All right. Competition in and of itself is not a bad thing. Like all of sports is the foundation of all of sports is competition. Where does competition not belong necessarily? In the kingdom. And we're going to talk about that. Now, where I am in my walk with the Lord is, I'm, I'm like, I'll tell you this, I think every time I get up here is I am a whole from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, a complete nerd, like all day long and twice on Sunday. Okay. So where I am is at the point where, I mean, I've read the Bible a lot. I've studied the Bible a lot. When I wasn't a believer, I was reading the Bible for, like, the evidence. You know, oh, well, it's a cool story. You know, I should read this. But where I am now is when I see something new in a story that I've read or heard preached on, like, 50 times, it just, it just gets me stoked. All right? So the thing I'm going to share with you this morning is a different perspective on a story that we've heard over and over and over again, and that's going to be the washing of the disciples' feet. Now, I always thought of this story as almost like Jesus instituting a new sacrament, and the washing of feet is like right up there with communion and baptism. It's, a, it's like a thing that we do, right? And when I was a little kid, my sister and I were little, we would go stay with our grandmother pretty often, and she would wash our feet, and we just thought it was super cool. You know, she would get down on the floor, and she was like, probably at that time in her late 70s, get down on the floor with a hot thing of of water and soap and just scrub our feet and then rub our feet and dry them off and stuff. And Chris is up here making a face. I know he got a foot problem. (laughs) You don't like the feet, do you, Chris? Mm -mm. So he's glad that's not a real sacrament, the foot washing. Um, So we just thought it was a really cool thing that grandma did for us when we were kids. And it took on a whole new meaning when I began to walk with the Lord. And I found in, in looking at this story from a different perspective that the meaning that it took on for me was cool, but that wasn't even what Jesus was doing in the moment. So we'll share my, share my nerd out with you. So your pastors have a fun little rivalry going on where they, they, they talk about who got more amens and who got more applauses. And at the end of the day, that's all it is. It's, it's fun. Yeah. That belongs in the kingdom. Right. I got in on it last week. At the end of the service, I told Chris, hey, man, you might want to leave all these extra chairs out because I'm preaching next week. <laughs> we had all the Easter chairs. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, my son, Ben, he's 17. Well, a friend of his was staying with us last week, and he came to church with us on Easter Sunday. And before we left, he was, like, a little nervous about it. And he's like, hey, is there, is there anything I should know? Like, what's the program here? <laughs> And I totally oversimplified church for him. You ready for this? Stand up, sing, sit down, listen. There you go. There There you go. So we see in the Gospels, and this is recorded in, I think, three of the Gospels, and it's in three different instances where the disciples had some rivalry going on amongst themselves. And we give the disciples as a group a really hard time. 
we really do. We're like, man, you walked around with Jesus. You saw all this stuff and you still act a fool, you know, but we need to stop for a second and imagine that we're not going to do any better. We're probably going to do way worse than the disciples did. But there, there are two pieces of encouragement that I want to give you out of this. The first is that the writers of the gospels didn't whitewash over that. They left it in there. And the fact that they left it in there and exposed the disciples themselves as a bunch of knuckleheads should let us know that we can have a higher degree of confidence in the accuracy of the Gospels. If they didn't, like, change the story a little bit to make themselves look a little bit better, there's a pretty good likelihood that what they're telling us is how it really happened. The second piece of encouragement is that God seems to have a pattern of working in and through knuckleheads, of which I am chief. So why was there a rivalry among the disciples? When did it develop? It seemed to have developed or come to light later in Jesus' ministry. Why is that? It was after the feeding of the 5,000. It was after Jesus had been transfigured or the glory of God was shown through Jesus. It was after Peter had declared that Jesus was the Christ and Jesus is like, yep, I am. So these guys had seen him do like all kinds of stuff. Now he started predicting his death and that he would be resurrected. He would rise from the dead. So they're feeling pretty good about this new kingdom that Jesus has come to institute. And they're starting to think, just like we would, hey, where's my spot in the kingdom? And what results from that is a lot of infighting and jockeying for position. And when we sit here and we think, like, well, I would do better than that. These guys were crazy. They're a bunch of knuckleheads. All right. Imagine somebody you know is very talented, and you know that they're going to make it big. When they get really close to making it big, what are you going to do? I'm going to get over here next to you a little bit. Let me see how close I can get to you. See how, how I can receive some advantage or benefit from your success. The disciples are no different than us, none whatsoever. So let's look at these three instances. The first one is uh, from Luke chapter 9. And as a person who loves a good teachable moment, I really appreciate the approach that Jesus takes in these, in these instances because the disciples are constantly interrupting him and asking stupid questions, and he's constantly stopping what he's doing and pulling in some example from around him and saying and answering their question. He's so patient as a teacher. He's just, it's, it's amazing. But we can imagine these moments that Jesus might have really let out a sigh. There, there may have been a holy eye roll, you know? Holy eye roll. But then he rolls up his sleeves or whatever they had on that sheet they're wearing. I don't know. He rolls his, rolls his sleeves up and he goes into rabbi mode. In, in this passage, we're going to find that he uses um, a kid that happened to be around as, a, as sort of a prop. All right? And in, in looking through this, I went back and I did a little bit of reading on kind of the role of children or what, you know, what it would have been like to be a, to be a small child in first century Palestine. And 
what I found was that men and women in this time lived, primarily they lived separate lives. You know, they came together for things, children. Um, but, but, you know, the men kind of stayed with the men and the women stayed with the women. The children were allowed to just roam and they could freely go in between these two groups. So what happened was the women sent the children to spy on the men to find out what the men were up to, and the men sent the children to spy on the women to find out what the women were up to. That was, that was like, that was a thing. So when there was something going on that you didn't want everybody else to find out about, what would you do? Shoo the children away. All right, let's read. Luke chapter 9. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. So to put this into context, the disciples have started to have this discussion. Now, if you've spent enough time with another person, when it gets down to actually having an argument about a thing, you've been thinking about it for a long time. Right? You've been taking the trash out. The only one taking the trash out, the only one putting the toilet seat down, the only one putting the toilet paper roll back on the, on the little hanger thing. By the time you get to arguing about it, you've been thinking about it for a long time, all right? So they've been thinking about this for a while, and then they get to the openly arguing about it. They're like, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you, Right? That's right. No, you can as you can. So what do they want to do when they start, when this argument is starting to occur? They want to shoo the kids away. We don't want this, everybody to find out that we're, that we're arguing. Shh, get out of here. And Jesus is like, hold on. Stand right there. He's saying, my kingdom has no secrets such that a little child should be welcome in this conversation. The most vulnerable among you, this little kid, is really the greatest. You guys are arguing about which one of you is greatest. Who's the greatest? This kid. Children at this, po- this period of time had a 50% mortality rate. That meant if you had two kids, statistically, one of them was going to make it to adulthood and the other one wasn't. Kids had no rights of any kind that we think of now as, like, as rights, necessarily. They were highly valued, but at the same time, they had no standing whatsoever. And they were ephemeral, to use like a, a big $10 word. They, were, they, they might not make it, you know. So for Jesus to, to use a kid to point out, like, you guys are fighting about who's greater. This, is, this, this kid's greater. In the kingdom, greatness equals vulnerability or transparency. That's what passes for greatness in the kingdom. 
And uh, at just as an aside there, a little, little nugget here at the end, in verses 49 and 50 where, the, where the, 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 the disciples are like, or John says, hey, we saw these guys passing, or, uh, um, casting out demons in your name, but they're not with us. We tried to make them stop. Just in that little two-verse passage there, Jesus is saying like, hey, man, don't worry about what the Baptists are doing. Don't worry about what the Catholics are doing. Don't worry about what the Presbyterians are doing. None of your business. If they're not against us, they're for us. And that's before we had Baptists, Catholics, Presbyterians, Methodists, you name it. Second instance where this, where this pops up is in Mark chapter 10. All the products placement. Got my swag on. How can you get one of these, Chris? The website. Scan the QR code on the back of your seat. (laughs) Not the prettiest pitch man you'll ever see. Starting in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. So they're going up to Jerusalem for the Passover, like it's getting ready to get real. And this kingdom that Jesus has been talking about is really, I mean, it's, they are right there. It's, it's, it's fixing to be on. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Because I'm sure that they were there earlier when he told everybody, like, you know, you ask and, and you get. Oh, oh, cool. That's how this works. We're going to rub the lamp and Jesus genie is going to come out. So we want us to give you what we ask for. What do you want for me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard this, they became indignant with James and John. I can't believe you guys. And secretly, they may have really been thinking like, why didn't I think of that? I should have asked should ask first. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I had a picture that was in my phone somewhere, and I sat and looked for it for like an hour last night, 
And finally, I said to myself, you should probably be working on your sermon notes instead of looking for this picture. I searched the internet. John helped me. We looked and looked and looked. I couldn't find it. It was, it was a picture of, of Jesus, and he's in a racing suit. He's in, like, the fire suit, and he's leaning against a race car, like that classic pose, you know, where the guy's like, and the caption over it said, if you're not first, you're first. <laughs> I couldn't find it, but it, it would have been, been awesome. So Jesus has to pull the 12 aside as they're getting ready to go into Jerusalem and, and have another talk with them. Because he's getting, he's, he's getting his mind wrapped around. He's preparing himself for being spat on, beaten abandoned, mocked, crucified, all that. He's preparing himself for that, and the disciples are busy. Anything you can do, I can do better. So he has to pull them aside again. But, I mean, we can't really, we can't really blame them because it was getting, I mean, it was like that close. It was getting ready to be on. It was so close that, like, they were desperate to get lined up in the right position in the kingdom that Jesus was getting ready to bring in, so much so that two of them actually had the nerve to say openly in front of everybody else, hey, man, when this kingdom comes in, like, I want to be on your right, I want to be on your left, because you told us you're going to do whatever we ask, right, Jesus genie? So what do we have? Another... And a holy eye roll. <laughs> so what passes for power? What passes for power? The religious leaders of the time, it says here that they lorded over their authority. They lorded it over the people. They were supposed to be the servants of God and the servants of the people and instead, they would manipulate the people with coercive power, where if you don't do what you're supposed to do or what we say you're supposed to do, there are going to be penalties, and you may even be like put out of the community, which was like as bad as death at that point. To be put out of this community was like it was the worst. So they manipulated people with their power that they had. So this is what passed for power in first century Israel. And it's really no different today is what passes for power. Power is coercive. It compels you to do things that, that are like the right thing to do. It compels you to do those under threat of some kind of reprisal, some kind of penalty. You ever work for somebody like this? <laughs> you don't really respect them. You don't really work hard for them. What you work hard at is doing just enough to fly under the radar and to try to not get caught in your secret work hiding place, right? I mean, I talk to guys that worked in the shipyard, and they're like, yeah, I got my spot. You know, I'm down in this. We're supposed to be cleaning these tanks out. Mm -mm, I'm down. I'm chilling. 
this is, I just thought of this story. I used to work for a, I used to work with a guy, and we worked for the Equifax Credit Bureau. This is when like you had a credit bureau that was like brick and mortar place, and you went to the building and they gave you a paper copy of your credit report and all that stuff. So I'm that old. Um, but, th- but there was we we were um, downstairs in this building, and the room next to our little our little tech area. Um, was full of paper records, like mortgage reports, like all kinds of stuff. And you had to keep this stuff for seven years. And at the end of seven years, you could you had to destroy it. So there's this room full of rows and rows of metal shelves and these banker boxes, like full of all these papers and stuff. And this guy that I worked with would go and he would get a light bulb and he would climb up on top of one of the shelves, turn the lights off in the room. And he would pull the light bulb out of the fixture and then you would lay there and fall asleep. And if somebody came in and flipped the light on, he would immediately start like fiddling with the light bulb. I mean, like, I mean, all the time. If I was like, "Where's Tim?" He's he's putting changing light bulbs. <laughs> so power. I mean, honestly, that that's kind of a good an illustration of what power you know, power, like coercive power does, it's not really that effective. It's effective in getting like the bare minimum out of people under the fear of penalty. Greatness does not equal coercive power. In the kingdom, greatness. You know, we might, it might pass for greatness outside of the kingdom. Like, yeah, man, that guy points his finger and a hundred people walk over there. He's got power. Not in the kingdom. Now, we all know, you know, what happens next in the story. They, they, they come in, the disciples come to Jerusalem. There's this huge welcome. We, you know, we celebrate it as Palm Sunday where, like, the multitudes come out and they lay palms, branches down, and they lay their coats down, and they shout. And, like, it's, it, man, the disciples had to be thinking, like, oh, yes, this is it. Woo! Where's my spot, you know? Finally, for them, like the long-awaited Messiah is getting ready to come into power. And for these guys, like they're fishermen, like dirty, dirty, nasty, gnarly fishermen. Like, have you known people that worked on like a, a trawler? Like that's a gnarly lifestyle. And that's what these guys were fishermen. And a tax collector, like they weren't going to ascend in the ranks of society. They just weren't. They were going to be down here doing their thing. So this was like hitting the lottery for these guys, and it was getting ready to happen. So they became even more desperate <laughs> to, get, to get their place in this new kingdom that was coming in. They've seen Jesus cure sickness. They've seen him uh, cure leprosy, drive out demons, um, cause a blind man to, to regain his sight, a lame person to walk. They've even they've seen him feed 5,000 people with, you know, five loaves and two fishes. They've even seen him raise a man from the dead who had been dead long enough to stink. So they knew that this guy was the real deal. But in that moment, what was important to them was my spot. I got to get my spot in the kingdom. They would have been, uh, you guys remember, Stoked, amped, frothing. They would have been frothing. 
So this all comes to a head at what we now we call the Last Supper or at the Passover dinner. Luke chapter 22 records the setup for, for what we know as the Last Supper um, or, or it's the Passover dinner. It's where Jesus institutes what we take now as communion, um, the bread and the wine. So Jesus tells Peter and John to go into the city where they will see a man carrying a pitcher of water. We got to follow this guy and where he goes they're going to they're going to have a little conversation with him and then they're going to get the room ready to have they're going to going to going to get the meal ready so that they can go up into this upper room and have this meal together. And they found everything happened as Jesus said it was going to. They met the man with the pitcher of water. They got all the details ready, even down to a pitcher of water, a basin, and a towel. What wasn't arranged for? A servant. All right, let's read. Luke 22, starting in verse 10. He replied, this is Jesus, he, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that we may eat Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be that would do this. So why had Jesus not arranged for a servant to wash the feet? Because he should have had 12 servants with him. The energy they were expending tripping over themselves to try to ingratiate themselves to Jesus and get the prized position in this new kingdom that was going to come into effect should have been going into servanthood. And he's been trying to tell them this. And they're not knuckleheads, just like me. So they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And then, verse 24, guess what? A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was considered to be the greatest. So, so they're, they're like, like, oh my gosh, one of us is going to betray you? What? Who is it? It's, oh, I bet it's Matthew. You know, they're grumbling among themselves which it's a hop, skip, and a jump from that 
to who's the greatest. It's, it's just, I mean, you can see how it goes. They go from wondering, like, which one of, okay, well, which one of us is the worst? That's what basically they're saying. Like, which one of us is the worst? Okay, well, then, then which one of us is the greatest? And they start arguing again. So the atmosphere here in the room was... I'll use the word toxic, <laughs> but it was the, the disciples were just about as out of line with Jesus as they could possibly be in this moment. He had brought them together to basically, there's a culmination of his whole time with them. The whole three and a half years that he had walked like hundreds of miles with them and performed miracles and done just amazing things and taught them, revealed the kingdom of God to them. This is the culmination of all of that. And he has so much stuff that he needs to tell them in what I'll call his farewell speech to the disciples. He has a lot that he wants to lay down on them. And they're busy with anything you can do, I can do better. They are way out of line with Jesus. Another eye roll, maybe, holy eye roll. And then we're going to move to John chapter 13 and see how Jesus resolves this. John chapter 13. I'm going to read uh, verses 2 through 4 first. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his control and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. When should the foot washing have occurred here? After dinner? Uh-uh. When they came in the door is when it should have happened. So now you got to imagine all 12 of the disciples walking in the door with their dirty, nasty feet, like, I don't wear flip-flops. I, I got a pair for free, like nice Vans flip-flops for working at a surf contest, and I'll wear them if I got to, like, cross a hot street or, oh, man, I got to put something on my feet and run to the store really quick. Man, flip-flops, they're nasty. Your feet sweat, and then your sweaty feet picks up all the dusty gunk and stuff that people have sneezed on the floor, and, and then it just builds into this, you know, so the foot washing should have occurred when they came in off the street. But now imagine all 12 walk by, they look at the basin, they look at the pitcher, they look at the towel, and they think to themselves, hmm, somebody should do something about this. And then they sit down and have dinner. And Jesus lets it happen because he's good like that. He's going to take that. And he's not going to institute a new thing that we're going to do. We're going to wash feet. He's just going to take that, and he's going to really use it to drive the point home to the 12. This is the, like, nerd thing for me, that it wasn't about the feet. <laughs> it wasn't about the action of washing the feet. It was really about the action of love manifesting itself through servanthood. Uh, Rembrandt painted a, a, a famous painting of the Last Supper, 
and it's got a lot of silly details in it, as you would imagine a Rembrandt painting would. But one of the details that it has in it, all the disciples are seated at a table, got dirty feet. He got it right. All right, five through seven. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who's always swinging for the fences. He's like over here, and then he's way over here, and then he's back over here. Who's that like? Everybody. Me. Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you are going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And I want to stop there. We had men's night last night. We got the meat sweats. We sat around outside, and the gnats got us pretty good. But we had a really cool discussion. Chris had a, came with a pretty good, good, good like discussion question. And he was like, if you could ask God one thing, like just one question, what would you ask him? And somebody came up with, well, why? That's what I would ask him, why? And in rereading through this this morning, this jumped out at me, verse 7. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but you will all understand. You will understand later. There's, man, there's a lot that God's got going on, and we don't understand it. And we will understand it. And after, after last night, I was thinking for myself, you know, like, what question would I ask? And the question I think that I would, well, I don't think there would be a question. I think when you get a face-to-face -face with God, any question that you thought you had, you're not going to have anymore. <laughs> it's all of a sudden, like, all those questions you had, not important. So there's just, I just wanted to kind of drag, you know, pull that out, that there's a lot that God's got going on that we just don't understand. And that's okay. But in this instance, Jesus had this thing going on, and they didn't understand it. And now we understand it. My grandmother washing my feet. When we were kids, man, it was just fun. I didn't understand it. Now I understand it. Um, I was 50-50 on sharing this with you, but I'm going to go ahead. We have a thing that we do on Father's Day in the Schwartz household. We've been doing this for a little while. Father's Day, you know, it's Dad's Day. What you want to do today, Dad? You know, it always makes me think of Jeff Foxworthy. He's, the kids would be like, Dad, what do you want to do? It's Father's Day. I want a beer and I want to see something naked. <laughs> That's not really, it's only funny because it's close to true. Um, but so Father's Day, several years ago or more than that, I wash everybody's feet. And I start with the youngest and I work up. And I've just always taken it as my opportunity to impress upon my three kids. Sorry, <laughs> that's why I wasn't going to tell this. To, to impress upon my three kids the value of servanthood. That like, that's where power is really. Like, you want to affect people? You want to make a difference in what you're doing? Serve. So we just started doing that a few years ago, and it was like probably super uncomfortable at first, and now they know it's coming. So, I mean, there's nothing. If you've, 
As an adult, if you've had somebody wash your feet, it's, it's awkward, you know. It is, but we're, we're used to it now, so. But it was, it's, it's a teachable moment, and I've been blessed with, you know, I think I told Chris earlier this week, a lot, a lot of things in life are teachable moments, but the problem with that is not everybody's a teacher and not everybody's a student. <laughs> so, you know, you got, you got to have the right combination for it to really work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, verse 8, no, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He's like, no, you're not going to do that. Oh, all right, well, then wash all of me. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, which just as like a little side thing, I take this as Jesus saying, when you're born again, you don't need to be born again again. You might need a little periodic maintenance, but you don't need to just be like clean from head to toe all over again every time you fall short of the mark. You are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked him. It doesn't record that there's an answer. <laughs> I imagine there's a lot of... Uh, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Full stop. Is he telling him, like, hey, man, you got to... No, he's telling them, now that you have seen that your teacher and your Lord has taken up and done the least desirable activity in this whole scenario, that's what you need to do for each other. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger Sorry, I'm going to back up to 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you, which is kind of that, that verse right there is what got me started with the foot washing on Father's Day. It's, it's like, that's my day. I want to set an example because I got a son. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Not foot washing. I mean, if that's, yeah, cool, that's a thing, but it's not the thing. That's, and that's really like, that's the whole point of this. A lot of times we take the thing or we take a thing and we make it the thing. A thing here is the washing of the feet. It's not the thing. The thing, servanthood. Servanthood. So we have that greatness equals vulnerability and transparency. And that greatness is not coercive power. And now we discover that greatness equals servanthood. And with this 
action that Jesus has done and this teaching, simple. Water, bowl, towel. He didn't have like a smoke machine or a slide presentation or any of that. With that one simple example, the disciples have now been brought back into alignment with Jesus and they are ready to have, to receive the things that he wants to lay on them right now. What is a servant? What is a servant? A servant is someone who makes life better for someone else. It's that easy. It's that easy. You know, it's really simple to think of walking with the Lord as a list, a long list of do's and don'ts. You know, as, and, and as being, being a Christian, it's easy to think of it as a behavior modification. But it's not. You know, it's a thing, and it is not the thing. So being a servant means being someone that makes life better for someone else. And there's a lot here that Jesus didn't say, but, but that we tend to think. And, and with that, I'll, I'll get you guys to come up. Jesus didn't say, they will know that you are mine by the amount of Bibles that you have. He say that. He say, they will know you are mine by how much scripture you are able to recite. No, that ain't in there either. They will know you are mine by the way you go to church every time the doors are open. I looked. It's not in there. Look for yourself. They will know you are mine by the way you observe strict dietary laws. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Fortunately, not in there. They will know you are mine because you have been blessed financially and always have the nicest things. I looked for it. It's not in there. What did he say? He said, they will know you are mine by the way you love one another. That's the thing. The thing. So I heard it said recently that the invisible kingdom is made visible when it is inhabited by servants. And servanthood really just highlights the difference between power and authority. Power is taken. Power is seized. Authority is given. It's seeded. The influence of power only lasts while the boss is looking. The influence of authority has no limits. And Jesus welcomes him with his authority, not coercive power. It's the difference between doing the right thing because the boss is looking or under the threat of penalties or doing the right thing because your heart wants to do the right thing. So I wanna round it out by just planting this seed in your mind as you go through your week, ask yourself, what things am I walking past and saying, huh, somebody should do something about that? 
because I have news for you. You're a somebody. Now I'm going to pray for you real quick. Then I'm going to sit down. Or no, stand up, sing. <laughs> sit down, listen. Stand up, sing. Sit down, listen. Father God, I thank you so much for these moments. I thank you for the dynamic and alive complexity of these scriptures, Lord, of your love letter to us. I thank you that you have been, that you are, and that you will be. And Lord, I just pray that as we go through our week and through our, our future, through the rest of our lives, that you would cause us to become keenly aware of opportunities to make life better for someone else. In Jesus' name, amen.